Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We finished out chapter 4 today. And as we go through this, we need to keep in mind this whole section. John chapter 4 has been very specific with the grace of Jesus. It's been intentional with the woman at the well. It's been relational with the woman at the well. Jesus has spoken of man's sinful heart, our depravity. Jesus has spoken of the Father's seeking heart. He's seeking those that would worship him. Jesus has spoken of his saving heart, that he is the savior of the world. The Samaritans got it. The disciples struggle with it. The woman was the catalyst to get the whole crowds to come out. Jesus spent two days in Samaria. We finished that section last week. And the entire village says that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. Jesus is going to go. Remember, he was moving from Judea, from Jerusalem, up back to Galilee. He's going to pass through Samaria. We're going to find him today in his journey uh, up in Galilee. And it's going to close out this section of Scripture. And it's a very important section. It's a section that I know you know very well. But even as we're going through Family Bible Hour, sections of Scripture that we know, we just get to keep plumbing the depths and seeing the glory of Jesus. And this morning, as we go through this passage, we're going to see three things on display. We're going to see the grace of Jesus Christ on full display in five different ways. We're going to see unbelief in so many different ways, by those that are surrounding him, we'll see how Jesus speaks to that unbelief, and then we'll spend a little bit of time talking about how this all applies to Thanksgiving. Um, We're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving this Thursday. How does this all apply? Does this apply? We'll talk about all of it. Let's dive in. John chapter 4, we will read verses 43 through the end of the chapter, verse 55, or 54. John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days that he was in Sychar, he went forth from there into Galilee because Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feasts, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my son dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. 
Father, show us Jesus. Spirit, reveal your Son, his magnificent grace. Oh, the danger of familiarity, not only with a text such as this, but also with our Savior. God, teach us to esteem Jesus the way that he should be esteemed. To see and savor his grace and his glory on full display in these verses this day. We pray in your name. Amen. So, the grace of Jesus and unbelief. We're going to look at those two things as we go through. They're scattered throughout, so there's no real outline, and it's a very short section, so we're just going to keep it, taking it verse by verse, but we will stop and we'll see unbelief, the grace of Jesus, grace of Jesus, unbelief as we go through. Verse 43, after the two days that he was in Sychar, he went forth from there into Galilee. So that's about a 40-mile journey from Sychar into Galilee. He's going to his hometown, which is Nazareth. So it's about 40 miles from Sychar to Nazareth. We're going to also see Cana. We're going to see Capernaum. From Nazareth, it's about 10 miles north to Cana. From Cana, it's about 15 miles east to Capernaum. So there's kind of 40 miles up to Nazareth, 10 miles up to Cana, 15 miles over to Capernaum. He's traveling. And then we come to two verses. When I'm reading my daily devotions, I read like this. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that the prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did, so on and so forth. There's a difference between reading and studying, right? It's a big difference. The main difference in my world is time, just slowing down and asking questions. When you slow down, these verses make no sense. Okay, when you slow down... I don't get these verses at all. I want to show you why. And by the way, I'm not the only one. Uh, The translators of the NIV don't get these verses, so they kind of change them. Um, If you have the NIV, verse 44 will not start with for or because. I think it starts with when or now. Um, And then verse 45 won't start with so or therefore. It's going to start with just when. So verse 44, it'll start with now. Verse 45, it'll start with when. They're dropping two very important words, crucial words, because they don't make sense. They're just going to drop them. I don't know if you already see it. You probably do. So two days, he goes forth from there into Galilee. Verse 44, ESV has it in parentheses. It seems like a parenthetical statement, but it doesn't make sense. Jesus himself testifies that a prophet has no honor in his own country. His country, that word for country there, has the word um, uh, pater in it, like uh, paternal, father. So this is fatherland. This is his hometown, which is Nazareth. There are some people that try to make this mean heaven. His country is heaven, and he comes down and nobody receives him. Some people try to make this to mean Jerusalem or Judea. It doesn't. It clearly, technically means Galilee, specifically Nazareth. So he has no honor in Nazareth, verse 44, and so he goes there. Right? Verse 43. After two days, he went forth from Samaria to Galilee because he's not honored in Galilee. That doesn't make sense to me. Why would you go to a place that you're not honored? Why would you head out to go to a place where you know that you are not going to be listened to? You are not going to be received. This isn't really a new thought. Turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 11. 
Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not, what? Receive him. They didn't receive him. So this isn't anything new. Jesus is constantly going to people who will reject him. The newness of what we're seeing explicitly here is that he knows it, but he still goes. That's grace number one. The grace of Jesus is that he knows people will reject him, and yet he still goes to preach to them. He doesn't write them off as a lost cause, even even though he knows they're not going to receive him. Whenever you see that word for in verse 44, that word for is a Greek word, gar, G-A-R, gar. It's called a gar clause. Every time you see for, you have a gar clause. And this clause means uh, the motivation for why I'm doing what preceded it is this. It just blows my mind. Jesus knows that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And because of that, he's going to his own country. It's amazing. Uh, we know proverbs like these, right? Familiarity breed, breeds contempt. Um, this is the proof of a man's corruption that he never values what he's familiar with. A prophet has no honor in his own country. All experts come from out of town. We've discussed this in Family Bible Hour where people just don't understand. He is the Son of God. He claims to be something very radical and they're struggling with that because they're so familiar. He grew up here. We saw him. We saw him skin his knee. We saw him fall over. We saw him, we saw him attempt to walk and he couldn't walk. You're telling me God can't walk? This is ridiculous. This guy can't be God. They're struggling with that. Verse 45 adds a second just mind-boggling issue. Verse 44 says that when he gets to his own country, they're not going to receive him, right? That's what it says, right? They're, they don't honor him. They're not going to receive him. They're going to reject him. Verse 44 says, so when he came to Galilee, we expect, based on 44, he's going to be rejected. 45, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans what? Received him. Now, what? This is just, what in the world is happening? Okay? Jesus says, I'm going back to my hometown because they're going to reject me. And they receive him. Is Jesus wrong? What's going on? This is where I just, I I have to stop and I have to say, God, help. (laughs) What's happening here? I think you guys know what's happening here. They are receiving him, but it's not the kind of receiving or welcoming that we would think or hope that it would be. Just write down John chapter 2, verse 23. Remember, many believed in his name because of the signs that he was doing. You can also write down John chapter 7, verse 3. His brothers um, are asking that he go back to Jerusalem to do signs. His brothers who do not believe in him want him to do signs and miracles. Makes no sense. His brothers don't believe that he's the Son of God, and yet they say, keep doing miracles. This is awesome. Verses 43 through 45 are confusing, but they are so purposeful. This is what they're saying. Number one, Jesus is pursuing people knowing that they'll reject him. That's grace. He pursues people knowing they're going to reject him. What what a beautiful picture for us of how we're supposed to live out, even what Tim was saying, side by side. We tend to gravitate towards people that accept us, that honor us, that esteem us, that value us. Jesus, if he were to do that, he never would have stepped foot out of heaven. Jesus says, I'm gladly going to go to those who would reject me. Knowing that, he still goes. He doesn't give up on them. 
And though they receive him, yet they reject him. That's the second key here. They receive him in a rejectful way. They're saying, yes, we want you, but it's in a way that is ultimately saying we don't want you. It's confusing to everybody. It's confusing to the disciples. It's not confusing to Jesus. He knows what's in the heart of man. That's why he doesn't believe in their belief. Remember we talked about that at the end of chapter 2. They're all about signs. They're all about wonders. They just want to see him do more miracles. That's all they care about. And Jesus is going to address that head on. So, verse 46. He's going to come to Cana. And he's going to spend a lot of time in Galilee. By the way, you remember all the way back in chapter 1 when we talked about uh, John 1 through 4. It's only in John. It's not in the synoptics. If we didn't have John 1 through 4, we would think that Jesus' earthly ministry was two and a half years, not three and a half years. John 1 to 4 is about eight to 12 months worth of ministry in Judea. We call it the Judean ministry of Jesus. The synoptics don't have that. The synoptics take Jesus from the temptation straight to Galilee, where we are now, for the great Galilean ministry, which is about 18 months of Jesus ministering. So we're going to conclude the, the Judean ministry today as he heads up into Galilee and begins the great Galilean ministry. He goes to Cana. We know Cana. He turned the water into wine. And he sees a royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. Okay, again, 15 miles east, so Cana, 10 miles north of Nazareth, 15 miles to the east would be Capernaum, sitting right on top of the Sea of Galilee. This royal official comes. Royal official. Some of your Bibles might say nobleman. Um, royal official is a, a servant of the king. Um, th- there's a Greek word for king. It's basilus. And this word for servant of the king is basilikos. So it's a, it's a king's servant. Now, who's the king? That's the question. Um, the only king that this would be a reference to in Galilee is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the Herod that the Pharisees tell Jesus, you need to leave, he's going to kill you. And he says, that fox, that's Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one that's going to get John the Baptist uh, imprisoned. He's already imprisoned at this point. He's going to have him killed. Um, Herod Antipas is a very wicked man. Evil, wicked, depraved. And he has a servant who has a son who is sick. So we have a context for who this man is. He serves in the house of Herod. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now at this point, sometimes people will say, this is so similar to guys remember the centurion and his servant and they say these are the same events synoptic gospels matthew chapter 8 verses 5 through 13 luke chapter 7 verses 2 through 10 the centurion his servant is healed they say that's what's happening so the royal official is the centurion it's not let me give you four reasons why this is a different account number one the centurion in those accounts in the synoptics is in capernaum This account clearly happens in Cana. Now, his son's in Capernaum, but this man goes to Cana. Number two, the centurion is a Roman. 
this account doesn't specify that this man is uh, a Jew, a Gentile. It doesn't specify that we, we surmise that he is a Gentile. But it does specify that he is a servant of the king, which would not have made sense to say that he was a Roman centurion. Those words don't work when we're considering king. Servant of the emperor, servant of Caesar, that would have worked. But not king, and not the title that Herod himself would take to himself. Number three, the centurion says in that context of those two passages in the Synoptic Gospels that he isn't worthy to have Jesus come. Remember, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to step foot in my house. Just say the word. This man's imploring Jesus, come to my house, come to my house. So that's different. Number four, it's the centurion's servant that is sick. And in this passage, it's the man's son. So it is a different passage. It has similar aspects, but it's a very different passage as well. One of the things that I love is that we don't know for sure that this man, this royal official, is a Gentile. It's a good guess that he's a Gentile. And if he is a Gentile, there's something very interesting that's been seen over the course of these chapters. Jesus went to a Jew in chapter 3, Nicodemus. Then he went to Samaritans, half-Jews, half-breeds in chapter 4. And then he's going to go to a Gentile at the end of chapter 4. He's giving the gospel for the whole world. And even if this man isn't a Gentile, he's still giving the gospel to a Jew, to Samaritan village, and to a Herodian household. The gospel is for everyone. So, this man says, please... Come down, come down from Cana, down in elevation to Capernaum, and heal my son. This man is desperate. Most everyone was looking for a sign because they loved miracles. Do wonders, do signs, do wonders. This is so fun. We love seeing Jesus do these things. This man doesn't want to see a sign. He wants his son healed. He's desperate. The text says that his son has a fever, uh, verse 52, and apparently it's terminal because he says he's going to die verse 47 and verse 49 he says please come down before he dies i love this man there's just absolutely nothing that can create more desperation in your heart than when your child is afflicted and this man goes to jesus himself doesn't send a servant doesn't send his wife doesn't he goes himself he says please help my Bible says he was imploring Jesus, verse 47, to come down and to heal his son. Imploring. The word is actually just asked. He's asking Jesus, but the tense that, is, that it is in is saying continually, begging, pleading, and that's why we translate it imploring. Please, please, he's not letting him go. Now, the Jesus that we saw in the Samaritan village would say, absolutely, We've seen his compassion and his grace. And that's why the words that he says here, again, I read and I go, Jesus, that's not the way to speak. He says, verse 48, unless you, literally the, the verse says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's a harsh statement. Please come and heal my son. He's going to die. Unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. The you there, this is why the New American Standard puts in extra words. They're in italics. They're additions to help give the sense of the passage. The you there is that second person plural. You all. So he's speaking 
through the, this royal official, you all won't believe. You all want signs and wonders, and you all won't believe unless you see them. What must this royal official have thought? These are hard words. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his biography, Surprised by Joy, talks about how he came into the kingdom of God just kicking and screaming, I don't want to believe in Jesus. I think he's a fool. I don't think that he's real. Atheist moves forward, forward, and finally God grips his heart. He gets saved, and he bows the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he said this, and I think this phrase needs to be memorized by all of us, needs to be cemented into our souls. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion, he forces us to do something. That's our freedom. That's our liberation. Jesus says hard words. But in these hard words, this is grace number two. In these hard words, you can take it one of two ways. The crowds are going to take it in a very... uh, angry way. They're going to ultimately, we'll see their end in John chapter 6. They're not going to like what he's saying. And the royal official could have said, how dare you? How dare you speak to me? I'm a royal official. I am the servant to the king here, to King Herod. I could have you killed or imprisoned. Don't you know that my child has royal blood in them because of where I am in my position? How dare you say that to me? But instead, verse 49, he simply says, sir, Please come down before my child dies. No rebuttal. No, oh, what was that? He accepts it, he receives it, and he says, please come. This man reminds me so much of the Syrophoenician woman. Remember Mark uh, talks about the Syrophoenician woman where she says, can you heal my daughter? She has a demon. And Jesus says, "Um, the dogs don't eat the food that's on the table. Um, That's for kids. We don't give that to dogs. He's comparing her to a dog, and he says, I'm not going to give you my food. That's for kids. That's not for you. And instead of saying, excuse me, I have my rights. I'm a human being. I'm created in the image of God. She says, I don't have any rights. I'm just pleading based on your mercy and your grace, would you work this miracle? She responds, yeah, but even the dogs can just just crumb. I just need a crumb. I don't need a whole meal from you. Just give me a, an ounce of your glory, and that's enough for me to feast on for all of eternity. Just, I, and I'm not entitled to it. It's only by your grace. Jesus is amazed at her faith. I think Jesus is amazed here as well. He said hard words, but in these hard words, he is giving grace. The royal official says, please come down before my son dies, my child dies. Verse 50 This is grace number three. Jesus says to him, go, your son lives. This is gracious in many ways. But for us right now, in order here, this is gracious because he's giving a sign to those that he just said only want signs and wonders. He's saying, you're terminating on signs and wonders. All you want is to see miracles, see miracles, see miracles. And they're not making you get to the place where you believe in the miracle worker as the Son of God, you just say, you're a great magician. Give us more. And yet, again, if if I were Jesus, the world would be an awful place. But if I were Jesus, I wouldn't have said harsh words. And I would have also said, I'm not going to do a sign here in the midst of everyone. All they're looking for is a sign, and they keep on getting them, and it doesn't lead them to saving faith. 
So they don't get any more, and I'm only going to walk home with you and give you a sign. But that's not what he does. He gives a sign to those that only want signs with the possibility that maybe now, maybe finally that sign will lead them to ultimate salvation. That's the whole point of the book of John, right? We have it here on the banners. John's writing to show us that through these signs, they are proof that Jesus is the Son of God. So if we can see through the sign to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, we will believe and have life in his name. What grace that he doesn't say, you have failed so many times to see that I'm the Son of God that I'm no longer giving you the grace of another sign. I love that about Jesus. Some people see the signs and believe that Jesus is a magician, a really, really good one, and they keep following him because they want to see magic. Some people see the signs and believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and their only hope of salvation. The same signs produce two different responses. Just like preaching, right? The same sermon can give uh, humility and softness to our hearts and the same sermon can bring hardness to our hearts. It's the way that God works. So he says, you just want more and more and more and more and guess what? I'm going to give you another one. I'm going to give you one. And the man believed, verse 50, The word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. This is where words get crucial. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. The Samaritans, in contrast, believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be because of his teaching. You remember? We believed because of your word, woman, and now we don't believe because of you. We believe because of his words. It's about the words. It's about the truth. It's not about the works or the signs. And I believe this man gets it here. And that's why John says, very specifically, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. He didn't believe a sign. He believed the word. And I want to show you how much he believes this word. Verse 51. As he was now going down back to Capernaum, his slaves will meet him. And they will tell him that his son was living. That, by the way, is grace number four. Jesus grants grace number four by saying, your son will live, and he lives. He grants healing. This man had wanted Jesus to go down with him, and Jesus says, I'm not going. But this man wanted him to come down to heal his son, and Jesus says, I will heal your son. It's interesting that this official believed that this man could heal his son, but he doesn't believe necessarily that he can raise him from the dead says you got to heal him before he dies verse 49 and jesus says he's going to live he lives he trusts in the word and this is beautiful he starts walking back his slaves meet him say he's living so he inquires verse 52 what hour did he get better i want to know what hour did he get, he get better Here's the key word. Verse 52. Then they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So, royal official in Capernaum wakes up, says, I need to go see Jesus. My son's going to die. I need to go see Jesus. Wakes up at sunrise. Let's say sun comes up, he gets up, goes. Um, 15 mile journey from Capernaum to Cana. Probably gets there around noon, 1230. Has an interaction, seventh hour, that's sunrise plus seven, so that's one o'clock. Has a conversation, 
Jesus says, your son lives. He easily could have said, awesome, let's fact check that though. And zip on back down. It's one o'clock. Now you're going down, not up the hill. So it's a little bit of an easier trek. You're going down. And if he woke up at sunrise and it took him six hours or so to get there, let's say it even takes him seven hours. He can get back home eight hours. He can get home to check. Again, if it were me, it's a sad thing when I do everything differently than people in the Bible do. If it were me, I would have said, thanks, Jesus. I'm out of here. I'm going to check that out. Go home. Is he alive? Is he, is he well? Here's where I want to show you. I believe that this man believed the word of Jesus and that belief in the word will lead to a belief in the person of Jesus because instead of going home that night, he spends the night somewhere between Cana and Capernaum. We aren't told, but there obviously is not a rush to get back home because they say, the servants say as they see him, he got better yesterday. He waited. He slowed down. Why? The only reason he could slow down and chill as he's going home is say, you know what? Jesus did it, and I believe it. Jesus did it, and I believe it. And that's what they say. Yesterday at the seventh hour, when you were talking, the fever left. So the father knew, verse 53, that it was at that hour in which Jesus had said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed. It's gone from believing the works of Jesus to believing the word of Jesus to now believing the whole person of Jesus. He believes. He and his whole household. They all believe. We see this happen a lot in the book of Acts. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, believes he and his whole household. Lydia, Acts chapter 16, believes her and her whole household. The Philippian jailer, chapter 16, believes. Crispus believes, Acts chapter 18, he and his whole household. But there's a beautiful progression here. The progression of this passage is just so, it's beautiful. The beginning, the the prologue to it, is I'm going back to a place where they only believe signs and wonders. They're going to receive me because I'm a magician. They're not going to receive me because I'm the Son of God. And then here comes somebody that, that receives Jesus, that believes in Jesus because he's a magician. And the question is, as Jesus rebukes him and everyone else, you only believe because of the signs and wonders, the question is, will he move past a belief in works and signs to a belief in the word that he's spoken, ultimately to a belief in the person of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happens. He believes, his whole household believes, that's at least him, his wife, and his son, probably more. Verse 54, this is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The whole purpose statement of the book of John, he writes these signs, many signs and wonders Jesus performed, they could be written in so many different ways, so many different places that the world couldn't even contain everything that he did. But these have been written so that I can prove to you, John's saying, I want to prove to you that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by believing in him, not in what he does, you would have life in his name. Therefore, that's why verse 54 says it's the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. He has done so many other miracles. But this is the second sign that John's picking. And he's picking it to prove a very clear purpose. It's a, it's a very clear proof that he's trying to get across. The point is this. Don't ever terminate on looking at Jesus and being wowed by what he does. 
his signs and his wonders. Let those signs and wonders take you to a place where you hang on his every word. And as you listen to his every word, faith will come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Think about the first sign. John's picking specific signs. The first sign, how does Jesus perform the miracle? He doesn't perform it by putting his hand into the water to turn it into wine. He doesn't perform it by picking up a vat and moving it. He's sitting on a couch saying, do this, do that, do this, do that, do this. It's done. He performs the miracle by his word. It's a sign. It's a wonder, but it's performed by his word. Everybody terminates on the signs, but he's saying, look, they're pointing to what I can do by my words. Same thing here. I'm not going to go down and go to your house and lay my hands on your son. I'm going to speak a word. It will perform a sign. But I think John is giving us signs that are performed by words, not by touching. So let us see. The signs should point us back to the word. And the words point us to the person. And the person is who saves us. So, four points of kind of application and conclusion here. The word faith or belief in the book of John is used about a hundred times. The whole point of this book is that we would believe. But we've already seen there's different kinds of belief. There's uh, saving belief and there's unregenerate belief. So how do we know that we have saving belief? And how do we encourage others to have saving belief? Point number one in conclusion here. Point number one, faith comes from hearing, not from signs. Now, signs totally help. That's why John says, I'm showing you signs. But they must get you to the word speaker so that you hear him speak and bow the knee to his words. That's why our first W in our core values is word, not works. We want to hear God speak to us, not stare at what he can do. Sure, stare at what he can do. Romans 1, Psalm 19 tells us there is a God based on what he can do. But in our context, if we kind of put it next to that, general revelation, what God can do in the signs and the works can only condemn. Special revelation, his words can bring saving faith. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, not by signs. Signs aren't wrong, signs aren't bad. Just be careful how much you are looking for signs as opposed to listening to the words. Number two, faith grows by exercise. Faith grows. This man's faith goes through three stages. We already talked about them. Number one, he shows up and Jesus is a miracle worker to him. He says, do a sign. That's his faith at the beginning. And Jesus rebukes him for it. You have the bad faith. He gives him a sign. And I believe that sign through the word. This man hears the word and has a deeper faith. I believe that you can do that. I believe you can heal my son. So as I leave, I'm not going to rush back home. I believe he's already alive. I imagine this, this man going back, this, the slaves, the servants are just running, maybe horses running, and they're just out of breath. Sir, sir, we have to tell you news. I bet he goes, he's alive, isn't he? Yes, he is. He's alive. He's okay. I knew it was going to happen. I knew. Tell me when. I bet I know when it happened. 
Seventh hour, one o'clock. Yep, that's exactly when he talked to me. I, he knows that. So he starts with Jesus, miracle worker, magician, just help me. Then he goes to, okay, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? And then he's finally at the end going to believe he and his whole household in the person. This is the Son of God. Faith grows through exercise. So my question to you is this. What are you going through that is a painful exercise? This is a painful exercise that this man's going through, but it brings about saving faith. What are you going through? It might be a trial. It might be suffering. It might be something that you're learning in God's Word that's hard to swallow. It might be something painful in relationships that you just can't seem to get right. What is it that's trying to grow, that God's using to try and grow your faith in Him? Don't fight against it. Let it stretch you. Let it grow your faith because faith grows through exercise. Number three, be careful how you come to Jesus and be careful how you believe in him. Be careful how you come to him and be careful how you believe in him. This man believes in his works, but now he believes in his words. He moved from the power of the works to the power of the words. So if we go all the way back to the prologue in this section, Galilee, they don't receive their prophet because he's in their hometown. Why? There is something that is dangerous about being familiar with Jesus. If I can say it this way, there is something about being familiar with Jesus that can make you not believe him. Right? That's what these verses are saying. He's in their hometown. They're so familiar with him, they don't believe him. How does that look? How does that show itself? What does that look like in our lives? Three ways that I believe we need to check our hearts as we approach Jesus with a sense of familiarity. Number one, we can become prideful because we know someone special. We're attached to them in some way. Just think about them. I live in the same city that the magic worker lives in. I live in the same city that the miracle worker. He, he lives in Galilee. Oh, I'm from Galilee. I'm from the same city. There becomes kind of a name dropping. Uh, I'm from Galilee, and that's where the Messiah is from. There becomes this like miracle, miracle worker you terminate on, I know him. I know him. But that's it. You just have pride because you're close to someone Number two, you can have a sense of entitlement because you know him. You can have a sense of entitlement because you are somehow familiar with someone special, someone influential. This is what his family does. I'm his brother. I want him to do things for me. Maybe we think we will get special treatment because we know him. I know him, so I have a sense of entitlement. Um, The reality is he doesn't owe us anything. This is what I love about the Syrophoenician woman. This is what I love about this man. When Jesus calls them out, they don't say, excuse me, I'm entitled to something. They go, no, you don't owe us anything. We're just asking for mercy. We're just asking for mercy. No sense of entitlement, but that can grow in our hearts when we become familiar. By the way, one of the best ways that you can tell that this is happening in your heart is when things go wrong in your world. Um there was almost like this unspoken negotiation with you and God. Look, I'm saved. You're helping me and things should go better. 
And when things go wrong, God, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. It's almost as if he's saying, where was the bargain? The bargain is, I'm going to make you like my son. And that is going to be painful. That is going to be hard. But the bargain is, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you. Whenever you see yourself, and this happens to me a lot, when things go wrong in my life, my first knee-jerk reaction is, God, what's happening? What's going, what are you doing? That's proving, that's showing. Number two, I have the sense of entitlement. I, I know you. This shouldn't happen to me. Number three, we can have an over-familiarity with Jesus where we just say, he's one of us. He's just one of us. This is interesting because it's the opposite of the first one. Pride because you're with someone special. Look, he's so amazing and I live in his city. Or look, he's so amazing I'm entitled because I'm his family. This is kind of the opposite. He's not that amazing. We talked about it in Family Bible. I, I, I changed his diapers. You're telling me that guy's the son of God? We can get so familiar with Jesus telltale sign of this is when our reading becomes boring. Our Bible reading becomes boring. He becomes boring. We just kind of go, yeah, check it off the list. I know I have to do it. So, how do we fight against that wrong belief? How do we fight against those things? How are we careful in how we come to Jesus? This is point number four. We end here. Thanksgiving. This is how you fight the sin of unbelief this is how you fight a sense of entitlement. This is how you fight pride. This is how you fight over-familiarity with Jesus. You give thanks. Turn to Romans chapter 1. You guys know this section of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. His works have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. They can only condemn. His works scream, there is a God, believe in him, and they know him, verse 21. But even though they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but instead they became futile in their understanding and their foolish hearts were darkened. So you see the signs that Jesus does and you have a choice. You can either say with the Galileans, more, 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 give us more. This is amazing. You're so cool and we're in your family and we are in Galilee. We're in your hometown. Do more for us. Or you can say, thank you. I see the sign and I go, thank you. I don't deserve that sign. I don't deserve the oxygen that I breathe. I don't deserve a beautiful day with sunshine. and I don't deserve any of this. That is what will lead you to, and I want more of you, not I want more of your signs. Thanksgiving is, is what will destroy all of these sinful issues. So let's stare at what we can be thankful for about Jesus. Look at his grace. He comes to a hostile place that hates him, that rejects him. He heals a servant of Herod, uh, his son. He is criticizing people for loving signs too much, and he gives them one. What grace. You don't deserve this, but I'm still going to give this to you. Look at his power. I mean, I know we've read this so many times, but look at his power. Just with a word. He lives 15 miles away, 
this boy all of a sudden, boom, gone. Fever's gone, sickness gone, I'm healthy. No, I can just see his mother. No, 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 you're not. Stay in bed, you need some chicken noodle soup, you're not better. No, I'm all the way better. From 15 miles away, he just goes, be healed. Boom. We can't become accustomed to seeing Jesus do that. We can't become familiar with that. Yeah, that's Jesus, that's what he does. Eh. Be thankful. He can do that with you. He can do that right now. Is there someone in your world, is there someone in your life that needs healing? Pray for it now, because he can do that now. Stare at his power. He doesn't need to touch this boy. He doesn't need to talk to the boy. He doesn't need to diagnose him. What, what seems to be wrong? All he's heard is there's a fever. The reality is, John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, that's what we need to stare at. The word points us to the person stare at the grace of Jesus. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have received from his fullness grace upon grace. So my question is, who are you going to be like? You've received grace upon grace. Will you be like the Galileans as a whole who say, yeah, we kind of deserve it and it's really cool so just keep doing it? Or will you be like this royal official who maybe at the beginning started by, I just want to see a sign, please help me, I'm desperate, please, and gets to, you know what, thank you. Thank you. I didn't deserve that, and you freely gave it to me. Is your heart filled with thankfulness for what God has done for you? If so, then we need to respond appropriately and say, thank you, Jesus. Everything that I have is a gift. God, thank you so much for the grace that Jesus has demonstrated yet again. Just every week we come and we see Jesus on full display, full authority, full power, full grace. And even here, it's hard grace. These are hard words. But the hard words produce salvation. So we thank you. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. We can only respond appropriately by saying... We are filled with thankfulness for you. For what you've done, yes. For your signs, for your wonders, yes. For your words and for your person. For who you are, we love you and we thank you.